From the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, is Milton Keynes International Festival and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume with your host, Nick Coffer. Welcome to another episode of Turn Up The Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes, an episode which today will show you the incredible eclectic diversity of the venue. I'll be chatting to Jim Cregan very shortly, long-time writing partner of Rod Stewart, multi-award winning songwriter and producer and wonderful guitarist to boot. He's playing with his band Cregan & Co at the stables in February. I'll catch up with Pete Furman who's bringing his trick talk show to the venue. Expect magic and comedy from a man whose social media videos reach tens of millions of people. And I'll speak to Vicky Gavin, lead singer of Fred's House, who'll be bringing their infectious mix of West Coast inspired folk to the venue in a few weeks time too. If you're enjoying this series, don't forget to click on follow to be notified of all future episodes and please do leave us a rating or a little review if you get a moment to do so. It really helps to get the word out about the work of the stables. Right, let's head to Jim Cregan's guitar-laden home studio to talk Rod Stewart, Etta James, Willie Nelson, Bruce Springsteen, and a whole lot more, including his upcoming gig as Cregan & Co. at the stables. Jim, lovely to have you on Turn Up The Volume. Well, I'm delighted to be on your show. Thank you so much. <laughs> do you know, I, I might do this a little bit differently uh, this time around, Jim. I think we're on episode 11 of Turn Up The Volume. And, you know, I've been doing things in a particular way, but but I've been thinking about you and I'll, I'll tell you why and what. So with you, it's possibly easier to list the artists you've not worked with than the artists you, you <laughs> have worked with, whether that's in a, a long-term collaboration with Rod Stewart or, or fleetingly on a one-off track. And your autobiography contains a literal A to Z of big names. And I mean A to Z. Now, I know you tell a great story. I know you like to drop names, and I mean that as politely as possible. So I think I'm going to do this uh, first part of the interview in a, a slightly different way. If I give you headlines to a story, I want to hear these stories for real. How about I just fire some names at you? Yeah, that's fine. Would you Would you like me to tell you about um, the person who I think is much, much better at this than me? Uh, an arch name dropper. Yes, an ar- absolute fantastic <laughs> name Go dropper. On. And I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who it is because uh, I, I wouldn't want him to ever hear this because it's embarrassing. Although he may, re- if he hears the story, he may recall. I'm down in the south of France having a holiday with Rod and Penny and my then uh, fiance Mandy Perryment. He tells me there's this guy across the road who he's sort of got to know, and he said, "I think we should go and have dinner with him because he can tell a story or two." But he is a huge name dropper, <laughs> and you'll see as we get there, right? Uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. So I said, "Well, why don't we have a scheme that every time he drops a name, we'll just tear a tiny bit of French bread <laughs> off and drop it on the table, you know, by our plates, yeah. right?" And um, and he said, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll see that, we'll, that way we can keep count. So uh, we duly, even before we've, we've got to the restaurant, he's come over for a glass of wine and we're all going to go down to the restaurant in the same car. And he, he's telling us a story about uh, uh, Richard uh, Burton and uh, Elizabeth Taylor, right? So we didn't have any bread at that moment. <laughs> but we, so we sort of logged that one away. Anyway, we go to dinner and it's non-stop from all the famous film stars you can think of to musicians and writers and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm surprised he, he wasn't friends with Napoleon. <laughs> Rod and I are doing this and, and piling up this, these bits of bread and after a while he notices and we think, oh, God, we've been tumbled here. <laughs> and he says, so what the hell is going on with this bread with you two? And... uh 
And I said, oh, actually, I'll tell you what, I've just got to go to the toilet. And Rod says, oh, yeah, I'm, me too. So we run into the into the toilet and said, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to tell him? What kind of lie are we going to make up? And I said, it's all your fault, he says to me. And I said, no, it's not. It's you. you he's, he's only having dinner with us because it's because of you. He didn't want to have dinner with me. <laughs> so, so we decide we're going to make up a story about we wanted to wait and see how long it took for the waiter to come with that little silver scrapey thing. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. And clear, clear it off the table, yeah, yeah. clear the bread away off the, off the tablecloth. And uh, so he said, yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll say it was a test on the, on the service. So we get back to the table and lo and behold, all the bread's gone. <laughs> he must have, so you never found he, out who won? He, he, no. And, and, I, then we, we, and he said, so what was with the bread? And we said, it was a contest to see how long it would take the bloke to clean up. <laughs> and, and lying through our teeth. Anyway, we got away with it. Uh, but it, there would have been about a thousand names yeah. dropped. And that's only an exaggeration. Shall, shall we take a metaphorical baguette in a, in a metaphorical <laughs> uh, fine dining French restaurant? Because clearly, clearly oh, it was so, a, a white table title for a song is it is it now my new from my new album metaphorical baguettes <laughs> yeah it'd be very interesting to see the lyrics for that I mean, um, yeah, Fripp would be Robert Fripp would like that wouldn't he be perfect <laughs> so, so I've, I've got my baguette in hand look these are stories that, that I've seen in your autobiography and uh, I've, I've seen you talk about in interviews so if I just fire some names at you um, go on then Etta James and the dodgy vocal ah yes Etta James well okay so I've got a job as a staff producer at BMG because a couple of the blokes who are the A&R guys uh, for uh, Wyndham Hill and uh, private music and several different labels um, got on. I got on very well with them and they they had so much work to do they would just say listen Jim if you can bring the record in under budget or within the budget uh, we'll just give you another record right after it so I was working there all the time I was making all these albums anyway they want to, to do um, this thing for the Nature Conservancy, right? And I spoke to the head of the Nature Conservancy, this very wealthy woman in New York, and I said, so so just tell me a bit about the Nature Conservancy before I start working on this record for you, because they were going to sell it as part of their, you know, fundraising. I said, so um, how do you get your hands on the, on, the, on the land that you want to protect? She said, darling, we do it the old-fashioned American way. And I said, oh, yeah, and what's that? We buy it. (laughs) So so I then have got the job of coming up with um, a a dozen songs that I can either record or license to be part of the Nature Conservancy. It's got to have some sort of theme. So I'd written this song, and here comes the first name, with a guy called Bernie Taupin, who, uh, as you know, has got a book out at the moment, fated by by so many people and, and one of the world's greatest lyricists. I was in a band with him. And we wrote this song called Stars and Seeds, which seemed kind of right for the Nature Conservancy. Yeah. And I, I get uh, clearance from the, uh, from the record company to have a, uh, a list of, of guests to sing on it. I've, I've got Mavis Staples from the Staples Singers, who's one of my favourite singers in the world, uh, Essa James, uh, Joe Cocker, um, Oh, who else? Um, uh, P- Peebo Bryson. And they're all going to sing. into a bakery, by the way. Forget the baguette. <laughs> <laughs> Full basket. So, so, I, so I get on the phone and I call all these people up. I don't know how I got their numbers. Oh, I had a secretary, that's right. Mm. And, um, and, I, and I get Edda James on the phone and I say, would you be prepared for a small shilling to come into the studio and sing uh, 
one verse of this six-verse song. And she says, yes, I'll do that. So she arrives, and she, she's, she's getting up there in years at this point, and she, she comes with an entourage of about eight guys. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, of course, you know, that's some little white bloke from Yeovil in Somerset who's working now with one of his greatest legends. Yeah. And in she comes and, and she's so sweet. She's really nice and friendly and all the crew are great and we're all getting on fire. She says, you're my little blonde angel. Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, is she hitting on me? This is, I mean, she's about 75 and yeah. I'm about 50 or 40. Uh, she's, she's warming up. And she's singing this song really beautifully uh, in, a, in a kind of tender way. And uh, then we go to, to the, for the first take, and she opens up as only Etta James can do, and it's full-throated and it's very, very strong. And it's great, but it doesn't suit the song. Yeah. The, 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 the mood is, uh, is far more reflective than, than – than, and it doesn't need to be big at this point. It gets bigger at the end. So um, – so I've got to, I'm thinking, God, how am I going to tell her to James? I don't like what she's doing as much as what she was doing before. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, just grow a pair. So I walked into the studio, um, you know, to, because it's easier to do face to face. And I said, I absolutely adore what you're doing. But the warm up when you sang so softly and sweetly was, um, was I think more suitable for the, for the energy of the song at that point. Nicely done. And, and she smiled at me and gave me a hug and said, my little angel, I'll do anything you say. Oh. <laughs> I thought, I thought, God, I got away with it. And she did sing beautifully. And, uh, and it was, it was one of those uh, records where I called it, uh, the, I called the band the Legends of Soul. Um, and the record company, of course, in a magnificent way, uh, fell out with the, the, um, uh, the Nature Conservancy and uh, didn't release it. And never saw the light of day. No, it cost $35,000, which was a lot of money in those days. I, I am so <laughs> concerned that we're going to need a second or third episode to get through these stories. If I, if I fire these at you, let's rattle through them. Um, okay. How about uh, Queen and alcohol and late night sessions that may or may not one day see the light of day? Ah, uh, yes. Well, uh, my uh, friendship... Um, with Roger Taylor goes back a long way. Um, and they were recording in the next room to us at uh, um, the, the record plant in, on Sycamore. And uh, so w- when I'd finished recording, we had our, the, the record plant liked us well enough that they built us in a, they built a, a pub for us on an, in an outbuilding. So we didn't have to go out, leave the premises to, uh, to get beer and, uh, and drink wine and do that sort of stuff. So we were very privileged to have this pub and nobody else could use it except us. Uh, so when the, the, I'd finished playing and uh, I'd sort of got clearance for the day, this would be about midnight. Um, we then wandered, I then, you know, went into the pub and had a couple of glasses of something or other and, and stayed long enough to get slightly pissed. And uh, and then there was a, a sort of a, a wandering in the corridors. Somebody like Brian May or, or or Roger said, 
why don't you come in? We've, we're nearly finished. Why don't you come in and we'll jam and see what mm. we come up with? And I thought, wow, that's a great idea, apart from the fact I've got a rule that I never play when I'm drunk. Yeah. And he said, come on, don't be such a wuss. You know, you've got a guitar. It's just, you know, in your room. Go and get a guitar. Come over here and plug it in. And I jammed with Queen and I was absolutely wretched. <laughs> I, could, I, I couldn't put two notes together. I think, I think Roger probably did that deliberately. Once yeah. he realised I was really quite drunk, he said, it'd be fun to get Jim on a track where he's really pissed. Was it on a tape or not? Oh, yeah, it was recorded, yeah. We recorded the jam. And uh, and the next day, because I knew all those people really well, we made all yeah. our records at the record plant. So I came back in and I spoke to the engineer. I said, any chance I could buy <laughs> that reel of tape off you? He said, not a hope in hell, son. <laughs> it will resurface one day for a lot so, of money at auction. <laughs> You, yeah, hugely you, embarrassing. You said there that you you, you tend not to uh, recall when under the influence. Um, smoking weed with Willie Nelson. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I've met as as, uh, as as you've alluded to a lot of famous. I mean, I've been doing this for you know sixty years. So yeah. In, in, the, in that time, especially if you're living in Los Angeles and you're best friends with Rod Stewart. You get invited to all sorts of parties and and black tie events and balls and all the you know all that stuff. Plus, his uh, one time his wife was a, a Alana was a genuine wannabe socialite. Yeah. I'm making a record with Janice Ian, and she's got a track that Willie Nelson's agreed to do a duet. The only thing is, we have to nip down to. Uh, Pedernoster. I can't remember the name of his studio. Something with P in Texas. So. She and I and the engineer go down to Texas with a reel of tape or whatever it was, a hard drive, I think, probably. And we go to Willie's studio and we set up and we get, you know, the mics all ready and Willie's not there yet and we're waiting for Willie and then suddenly he appears in the door and he's only five foot five, five foot six. He's diminutive and very slender. And I don't know why, but the there's a... There's a an energy uh, a, a, a vibe. You know the X factor idea where yeah. some people have it and some people don't. M- many of the people I've met have got that quality, but I've never known anybody who had it as much as Willie Nelson. Wow! And I didn't, you know, I I didn't think anything about the fact I was going to meet Willie Nelson other than, other than I really loved his writing and his voice, and I was a, I was a fan. I'm absolutely starstruck by Willie Nelson. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And I'm, I'm vaguely surprised at myself and, and delighted that he's such a cool guy and he's so wonderful. And so we listened to the song through and he said, well, I think maybe we should smoke and join before we do any work, don't you think? <laughs> and, um, and I, I said, well, because I, I don't work under the influence of drugs, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite grown up when it comes to my, the, yeah. my working life. And so I said, uh, of course, I said, um, yes. <laughs> what <laughs> am I going to say? I get the opportunity to smoke a joint with Willie Nelson. I'm going to say, no, are you out of your mind? <laughs> so we sat there and I got absolutely wasted on this, this drug. And, and fortunately, um, the engineer we brought with us was uh, didn't smoke and didn't feel the need to get high with Willie. So I just looked at him and said, uh, is this, how is this going? And he went, it's going great. I went, <laughs> okay, it's going great, Willie. <laughs> it's all you needed today. 
<laughs> yeah, he said he sang it three times, and we had it, and then yeah. we, you know, hung out and and uh, got on this plane that same day and went back to LA. But um, what is what a diamond of a guy, yeah. absolute diamond, and so very funny and kind and thoughtful and reflective. I can see why everybody loves yeah. him. I mean, it's re- if you're in the room with him, it's really apparent that he's he's quite special. He's got that thing that you can't, you just can't describe. Um, no. here, here's a left field one for you, and it's, it's actually it's becoming, I must say, totally unwittingly, but it's becoming a bit of a thing for me to to crowbar uh, Bruce Springsteen references into these interviews for the Stables. It's just it's just going that way at the moment. But I think oh. that you may win for having the best link so far. Your old house. Yeah, I sold my old house to to Bruce. Yeah, when he, he was uh, when he was moving first moving in into LA from uh, from uh, New Jersey, um, he bought my house. Yeah, yeah, it was lovely. Uh, I was getting divorced, and so the house had to go. And it, and it, we we finished doing it up. So it was quite smart. It had a, you know, it was r- r- right on the entrance of Laurel Canyon, sitting up on a bluff with a view, uninterrupted view across the city, oh, yeah. uh, which was definitely worth having. And you sat in the jacuzzi and stared across LA and wondered what the hell was going on and why, how many murders were happening as you looked. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it was very beautiful at night. And, uh, and uh, he bought it, but I never, I never got to see him um, when he was buying it. He would, we would be out when he would visit. Um, but I did get to know him uh, through through going to a party. Oh, this story is so bizarre. <laughs> I get <laughs> so so bizarre. This story. So there's a there's a guy um, who um, I can't think of his name for a minute now because you're dropping these things on me. Um, who was a, a, a Broadway producer, and he was an Irish guy. He was really, really cool. And and I knew him and liked him very much. But he's, he was having a, a a Christmas party, I think, or maybe it was a Paddy's Day party, and he sent out uh, invitations to people. But somehow, when he had said to his secretary, um, I want you to... Uh, get Steve Krikorian to come mm. to the party. Somehow she thought he said Jim Cregan, right? So <laughs> I got invited to this party by mistake, yeah. right? And so did and, and Rod probably got invited deliberately and so did Bruce Springsteen. There are only maybe 40 people in this room. Yeah. And there was a, this very strange thing between Rod and Bruce. They kind of eyed each other from across the room. Yeah. And they they sort of nodded and sort of smiled and everything, but Rod never went over to him, and he never came over to Rod. So there was a kind of um, strange uh, Mexican standoff. Standoff, yeah. And, and and I didn't really understand it, and I wasn't going to get myself in the middle of that. I thought I'd just leave this alone. And then when it was time to go, and and people were standing outside waiting for their cars to be delivered, because you know in LA every every party has valet parking. And so we're standing there waiting. His his car is we can see is coming up, and um, and it was um, what was it? it was a, a, a Corvette, a, very, a brand new Corvette. And Rod said, "Oh, I love those cars." And that's the first time they'd spoken. Wow! And then they sort of they put the cars slightly parked off to one side and got into a, quite a long conversation, mostly about cars, and then songwriting and everything. And 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 then numbers were exchanged, and eventually. Um, Bruce 
uh, well, for, of course, uh, Bruce knew that he'd, he'd bought the house from me and knew that I played with Rod. Mm. Um, and uh, so then Bruce gets invited down to Rod's Peach House, uh, you know, up, up the road from Malibu, a really great house, which I'm so sorry he sold. And so Bruce comes and hangs out for the day. Um, which is for me was really because I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan, yeah. and um, and we're just just sitting around drinking beer and you know jumping in and out of the water and mucking around and, you know just like any three terribly badly behaved lads would do. Yeah. And uh, there'd been a party there uh, earlier on for for children, and there was there was all these all these balloons were sort of hanging from the ceiling uh, in one of the rooms, and. I don't know whose idea it was. It, I think it might have been Bruce's idea. Who said, "Hey, he said, Raj, you know what we should, uh, you know what we should do is, you know, it's, it's unusual that we're, you know, we're down here together, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm really, you know, loving being down at the beach with you." He said, "We should get some of these balloons, and we'll, we'll write the phone number of the house on it and say this is uh, Bruce Springsteen and <laughs> Rad Stewart, uh, and if you call this number, we'll give you some free tickets to our gigs." Yeah. Right. And so they tied these notes to the to you know, half a dozen balloons and just took them outside and and tossed them off and off they went into the into the, into the wide. Did anyone yonder. call? We never heard a word. Oh. <laughs> we sat there going, and, I, and I, of course I was saying, you know, if you'd put my name on it, they would have called. Yeah, you realise yeah, that. Yeah, don't you put the wrong Or everybody thought, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, we it. believe that. Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, yeah, we believe that. Um, <laughs> it's a bizarre moment. Message in a bottle. <laughs> um, let's talk about Rod a little bit, and and, and yeah, the, the stories are are well told about how you met and when. I don't, I don't really want to go over that that, that now, not least because time is against us a little bit. But it's interesting with Rod because I think he's one of those rare generational artists who I genuinely don't have a true sense of in terms of as a person my, my guess is that he's extremely generous that he's very loyal uh, and equally probably quite demanding and and, and hard to please am, am i on the right track at all no oh, interesting <laughs> no not at all he's not hard to he's not hard to please no well, it was the last one that really uh, he's not hard to please um he's very easy to work with at least for me i mean he he quite often knows what he wants, but yeah. on the other hand, he's also very open to suggestions or ideas. When we first put the band together, we were all partners in it, it not equal partners, but we were shareholders. All the musicians were shareholders. And that was a really generous, what a ridiculously generous thing to do, because yeah. I've played in, in a few other bands, you know, I played in you know, Cockney Rebel and and uh, and, and uh, Katie Melua, and you're you're a hired hand, mm. you know, you get, you get paid very generously, but you don't have a, a, an interest in the, in whether you sell a load of tickets or not. Whereas we did for, for years, we had that system and it was, and it made a lot of money and it was, and it was very generous of Rod. So on that side, yes, he's, he's very, he's very generous. That was a wonderful way to begin my yeah. association with him. He's, he's open to giving you uh, for the songwriting and he's fair with that. You know, the, the, you, I did. A, I wrote a song with Steve Harley that he put on one of his records, and he had nothing to do with it. Now, other artists who have recorded my songs that they didn't have a hand in writing will ask for a percentage. If they're big stars, they will ask for a percentage of the publishing, yeah, because they're putting it on your record, on their record. 
and and that I find that to be really rude and insulting and and wrong and greedy. You know, if you're a big star, you should have plenty of money, and you shouldn't be trying to nick a bit back yeah. off the writers. Uh, you know, who who already don't get very much for having a song on the record, especially in America, they they screw you to the floor. So you think you you know, unless you do multiple millions, you're not really going to be able to buy more than a, a new tire for your your Lambretta. Right. You know, it's it's um. It's, it's 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 tricky, but you know Rod never wouldn't go anywhere near that. He never any time he did anybody else's songs, he just did it because he wanted to do it, and they yeah. get all the all the royalties. So that's another side of him that's uh, that's that I appreciate. Um, and in terms of um, well, I mean, I'm sort of in a, in a privileged position because we are very very dear friends. I was best man at his wedding to Penny Lancaster. Um, and I think that kind of puts me in a slightly different box to other people that know him well. It's um, you know we 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 come under the best friend heading, yeah. And and it's it's delightful. I mean, I could call him up and say, "Listen, I'm going to be in London. Uh, you want me to come over and spend the weekend at his country house?" And he'll go, "Yeah, of course, yeah." You know, it doesn't matter what else is going on. I mean, sometimes I'm there and he says, listen, I've got to go off and do this or that. And he'll drive off to London to get his hair cut or something. And um, uh, sometimes I go with him. We've, we've had that sort of thing where we take two Ferraris and race down the M11, which mm. is quite is quite amusing and naughty at the same time. Yeah. Yes, in, in terms of what he's like as a guy, when you see him being interviewed, that's really what he's like. Really? He's funny. Yeah. Very funny. He's quite irreverent. He doesn't take himself seriously 95% of the time. <laughs> and um, it, and we go down the pub together. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and the other day we went to, out to lunch and it, I had my daughter's car because I, my the, the battery had gone flat on my car and uh, had my daughter's Fiat 500, which I'd driven to uh, his house. And I, I took it to the um, to lunch because I thought I was going to leave directly from lunch and come home. And um, and he said, uh, oh, he said, oh, I'll come with you. And that's, just, you know, it doesn't have any problem. So there's, there's a Rolls Royce available yeah. or a Range Rover or whatever, you know, or some Mercedes. And he, he's quite happy to get on a Fiat 500 with me. Uh, that that's a he's got very much a common touch i think right cregan and co uh thursday the 15th of february uh, at the stables there's uh, only a small number of tickets left if you want them you need to go to stables.org to get the tickets before we talk about that uh, let's play a track what do you want to give us uh, so, so we can get a real sense of, of where you're at and what you'll be playing on that evening i think you ought to play uh, a song called spreading rumors it's the title track of our new album i say it's a new album it's a year old it's a song written by myself and Sam Tanner. And on this one, Sam Tanner actually sings it because we have two great singers in the band. We have uh, Ben Mills and Sam Tanner. And we have a, a special guest um, at the Stables gig. Uh, for those of you who are uh, aficionados of the guys who play in, in famous people's bands, we have Dave Bronze guesting on bass guitar, who for many years was um, Eric Clapton's bass player. Yeah. Him and Henry Spinetti with the rhythm section and a ridiculous rhythm section too. I worked with Katie, Katie Melly were band with Henry Spinetti, a wonderful drummer and a lovely guy. And uh, I've, I've, I've done some uh, work with Dave Bronze before and when our regular bass player, Pat Davey, who was offered 
the tour with uh, Paul Young, I said, no, go do the, this, you know, it's a tour. To go do the tour and we'll find somebody. And Dave Bronze is, is a wonderful musician, so I'm very excited that we're going to be playing live on stage Fantastic. with him and I'm going to be slightly embarrassed that I can't play as well as Eric yeah. Clapton, but we'll just have to put up with it. And this is spreading <laughs> rumours. You don't know her
is uh, Spreading Rumours from uh, Jim Cregan's latest album, which came out last year. Uh, Jim, as a final thought, is, is it a stretch to say that in many ways you're as musically satisfied or, or more musically satisfied than you've ever been right now? Um, yes, I think the great thing I, I have going on is that I'm my own boss. I do like the being able to say yes and no to whatever it is I want to do. I don't want to go on long tours because I have a, an 18 year old daughter who shares my house and I don't want to be far away from her for long periods of time. I've done that before. I've been on the road for 10 months sometimes with Rod and the Unplugged Tour. And that's tough. I had American children. I'd see them for, you know, weeks and weeks on end. That's uh, that's a bit tough. But I also have done something really, really stupid, <laughs> right? At 77, I th- uh, yes, I was 77 when I came up with this idea. I decided that I wanted to start a trio and uh, an acoustic trio and do um, little art centres and small theatres and play acoustic music and sing the songs that I wrote or songs that mean something to me. And I, I, I started rehearsing this um, some time back and it f- felt so natural and so so much fun that uh, that we're going to uh, we're, we're going to move that around and, and play some play some shows. We've got. Uh, I can't remember where the next one is, but um, it's Sam Tanner from my band on keys and Pat Davey, who we just spoke about yeah. on bass. And we're all, it's all acoustic and it's, it's quite delicate and it's, it's, there's not a lot of rock involved. But one of my heroes is uh, James Taylor. And even though this, this is not going to be anything like a James Taylor concert, the inspiration that I've had from James Taylor over the years would be reflected in the in the style maybe maybe something to bring back to the stables uh, in 12 months time i would love to do that yeah i think it would work really well at the stables yeah of course yeah. Would. so thursday 15th of february you've been really generous giving us your time here because so the show is all about 90 or 95 percent sold out so if you want tickets you need to uh, get in there very quickly stables.org uh, or the box office is 01908280800 uh, for more information on cregan and co best place to go is cregan and co co.uk and of course all the usual social media channels jim it's been an absolute joy to talk to you i really appreciate your, your generosity and your stories um i've got to go there because i've got a big uh, pile of baguette on the floor here uh, loads of <laughs> loads of breadcrumbs i've got to pick up i um, got to tidy up before i speak to my next guest but really appreciate your time <laughs> thanks nick it's been great talking with you coming up in february at the stables in milton keynes my name is alison young and these are my programmer picks of the month for february Heading to the stables on Sunday 4th February is a very special blues double headliner gig featuring Chantel McGregor and the Sinelli brothers. Both sets of performers started the relationship with us playing the smaller studio space stage two. Chantel back in 2011 and the Sinelli brothers in 2019. Known for her electrifying performances and virtuoso guitar playing, Chantel navigates so effortlessly between blues and rock. It's not surprising that she's been invited twice to support Joe Bonamassa on two UK tours and has amassed a legion of loyal fans who travel from far afield to watch her perform. The Sinelli brothers, Marco and Alessandro, are joined by guitarist and harmonica player Tom and bass player Stephen and are passionate about the blues, rock and soul sounds of the 1960s 
albeit with a contemporary twist. In a comparatively short time, they have released three albums, picked up nominations for three years running in the Best Band category in the UK Blues Awards, and successfully toured Europe and America as well as the UK. As well as our music and comedy programme, The Stables also aims to cater for family audiences, and this February half-term is no different. Direct from the USA, we have not one but two performances by Louis Pearl, a.k.a. The Amazing Bubble Man. Louis has been amazing audiences all over the world for the past 30 years with his dynamic bubble show. Prepare to get involved with loads of audience interaction as he demonstrates the full gamut of bubble tricks. Giant bubbles, square bubbles, smoke-filled bubbles, and even putting people inside bubbles. It's suitable for all the family, so join us on Monday the 19th of February. Finally, at the end of the month, we welcome back the wonderful Canadian musician Christina Martin. Stable's audiences were first introduced to her genre-defying, songwritingly, effortlessly traversing rock, pop, folk and Americana back in 2011, returning to the intimate surrounds of Stage 2, accompanied by guitarist Dale Murray, and touring her latest release, I urge you to check out the video of her title track, Storm, on the Stable's website, and join us for an evening of thought-provoking lyrics, powerful melodies and musical brilliance. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next month. For more information, head over to stables.org where you can also find out how you can help by becoming a friend of the Stables, volunteering or making a donation to the charity. To follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, just search for Stables MK. Pete Furman has become an internet and social media sensation. His brilliantly conceived magic tricks regularly garnering millions of views on social media. He's also a superb comedian, and both these skills will be put to good use when he brings his show Trick Talk to the stables in February. He joins me now from his home in North London. Pete, nice to have you on Turn Up The Volume. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, now, this is going to be tricky, isn't it? Because uh, it's a podcast. This isn't video. I can't see you. You can't see me. Our listeners can't see either of us. And we've got to talk about magic. Yeah, a, a visual medium is not the best <laughs> as as podcast fodder. But we'll try. We'll try our best, Nick. We'll, we'll paint pictures with our words. Exactly. And there's loads to talk about. Look, you are, I was trying to think of how to describe you. You, you are, you're the goal scoring centre half. You're, you're the, the opera singing painter, the, the, the barrister who's a, a fine dining chef. You're basically very, 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 very good at two very, very, very different things at the same time. Well, you say they're different. They're actually really quite similar. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, I when I think about stand up, I you know, I, I think the whole thing is a magic trick, really. You know, I don't know whether I'm bursting any bubbles, but for people that perhaps haven't realised, when a stand up is on stage and apparently these thoughts are just occurring to him in a mo- in the moment. Yeah, there and there. He yeah. said them before oh. in this exact order. Oh, you know to me. So it's 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 one big magic trick, and actually. Uh, the structure of a joke is very much like the structure of a magic trick in that a good joke sort of takes you by surprise. And I think that's that's one of the best qualities of a, of a magic trick as well. It sort of catches you unawares. So I actually think they make good good bedfellows and, and I think they're quite similar, to be honest. Yeah, it's funny. Earlier on, I was thinking, oh, yeah, magic and comedy. That's that's unusual. Then I thought Tommy Cooper. <laughs> I realised it wasn't quite as unusual as I first thought. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't sort of say the two things in a sentence without his name coming up, really. And I think in this country, um, when we think about the two, uh, he he's the first person that comes to mind. I mean, there's been great other greats over the years. I mean, people forget that Paul Daniels was actually quite funny. Yeah. You know, when he when he first came on the scene, he came out of the 
the uh, the northern working men's clubs where um you know you had to work fast and you had to work funny and and that was his sort of training ground and uh, there's been other great magicians i admire as well i when i was a kid i used to like um the great Soprendo, who yes. uh, was on was on Cracker Jack, yeah. and and he he used comedy to great effect as well. Yeah. So, in this country, I think we've sort of got a, and of course, I mean, t- to go back even further, David Nixon was a was course, a yeah. a gentle comedian. Um, so I think we've got a, we sort of got a, a bit of a history of 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 our funny magicians in this country. Uh, we certainly prefer funny magicians to the sort of more arch serious yeah. magicians that that America seems to produce. Yeah. I, I actually, I shared your love of magic, although I didn't go on to have a hugely successful career. Um, but as a child, now I remember going to see Paul Daniels at the Prince of Wales Theatre in London. Uh, and he was oh, funny. Yeah. I, mean, I, I could only have been like eight or nine. And my dad, who had and still has very little hair bordering on no hair, um, I remember that we were sat in the front row and uh, we were from a place called Bushy in, in Hertfordshire. And I've always remembered Paul Daniels calling my dad Bushy Raymond, uh, which of course was factually <laughs> correct insofar as he was from a place called Bushy, but entirely incorrect insofar as he was he was very bald. But I, I do remember him, as you say, being funny and, and having that, that, that performance about him. And actually I was thinking earlier on that I, I'm no magic expert. I, I did used to be quite into it, but I'm no expert. But what I do remember reading a long time ago is that all magic tricks are fundamentally based on, you'll know the number, but is it like four techniques or five or six techniques? And actually the comedians yeah. I've spoken to over the years will kind of tell you the same thing, that the actual core of building a gag and therefore the actual core of building a trick, they're kind of based on some very, very established and, and quite limited in number uh, strategies. Yeah, I mean, when you when you break it down, when you get it really down to brass tacks, in terms of magic tricks, there's only so many impossible feats you can do. <laughs> you know, off the top of my head, something appears, something disappears, two items transpose, that is to say they change places, something floats in the air. Uh, you think of something I couldn't possibly know, and I will tell you what it is. So we're working within these kind of parameters, yeah. but it's about it's always about how do you make the trick mean something to the audience? That's the kind of perennial challenge. Yeah, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, unfortunately, gone are the days where you can sort of display a sparkly box uh, and show it empty and then pull out you know, a multitude of different coloured silk handkerchiefs. That's just not going to cut mustard in 2024. So it's about, you know, how do you make it mean something to the audience? Well, one thing you can you can do to make it mean something to an audience uh, and, and a particular person is borrow something from them. You know, do the magic with something that they own. You know, then it's not Pete's weird magic prop. It's John's mobile phone yeah. that Pete happens to be doing this incredible thing with. So, so yeah, so it's about trying to make it mean something to an audience. But you're quite right. You know, we're, we're, we're already really playing with a handful of things, but that's not to say there's not a, a limitless amount of magic tricks because really you're only, you know, you're only sort of constrained by your own imagination. Yeah. Look, you've been doing this for, well, a long time, but certainly in the public eye for what, around 20 years or so. And it's quite interesting because that means that you straddle two very, very different eras. One, pre-internet, well, not, not pre-internet, but pre-internet such that we know it today. Uh, and the other is the internet that you've become a sensation on, you know, social media and TikTok and, and the such like. Uh, and it got me thinking because, of course, with the internet, all the secrets, if they're not necessarily 
out. Uh, they're certainly a little bit more findable than me 40 years ago when I used to um, I used to get these sort of little um, paper leaflets from the Magic Circle. And I remember I bought like little sponge tricks and stuff. And, and I was really excited because they were such obvious tricks, but it showed me how they were done. I know you've never, you're not a member of the Magic Circle, but is it a good or bad thing that fundamentally we can kind of get a sense of how things are done? Does it then put the onus on people like you to make them brilliant? I think magicians have always felt that sort of pressure and it's come in different forms. Rightly, as you say, you know, the magic tricks exposed on the internet, YouTube, TikTok, whatever. And and people do that as sort of, you know, a quick route to get views and likes and all the rest of it. But it's no different to in the 90s, there was a program on on American TV called the... uh, the Secrets of Magic Revealed that right. was uh, that was led by this guy, the Masked Magician. I don't know whether anyone remembers that, but there was this guy in a mask and his identity was secret. Did and they he find was out who it was? Revealing tricks. Yeah, he sort of, yeah, he came out and said, I'm doing this. And his rationale was, oh, magic's been stuck in its ways for, you know, decades. And this is a way to wipe the slate clean and start again and force magicians to come up with with new tricks. Well, I mean, the, the truth is it really didn't make a dent in any magician's living. And right. to go back even further, in the sort of um, early part of the 20th century, the big magicians of the day, um, there was a guy called Horace Golden that would ha- actually had his magic secrets exposed in as, as diagrams hmm. in sort of cigarette cards. You know, you used to get like cards in cigarettes that would have, you know, a cartoon yeah. or whatever it might be. Well, his tricks were sort of exposed in these cigarette cards. And he was quite famous for the sawing the lady in half trick. I mean, imagine when that was a new thing. It's sort of an archetype (laughs) of magic now. But imagine when that was the new trick on the scene, you know. And he had this trick exposed as a cigarette card. And he went out after this had happened and stood on stage and said, I suppose you've all seen this. Uh, (laughs) Well, let me show you how it's done properly. This is not how I do it. And then proceeded to do the trick in exactly the same way that he'd been it it had been exposed on the yeah. cigarette card and it didn't make a blind bit of difference yeah. because his showmanship and the performance is what won the audience over so i mean in a long rambling roundabout roundabout way i mean it sort of it does and it doesn't affect uh magicians um because you know people have short memories yeah. and you know Sometimes, you know, you can be swept up by the performance and um, and really the modus operandi is neither here nor there. I have a, a slightly different theory, or it's kind of the same theory, but, but a bit of extra. And that is that as an audience, we actually quite enjoy familiarity. You know, you go and see an artist, you go and see a band. You've seen that music before. You've certainly listened to that music before. So there's something quite comforting in in knowing what's coming. You go and watch Les Mis for the fifth time. You know exactly what's coming, but you still get the thrill of the show. And I guess with with magic as well, it almost doesn't matter if you know what's coming. You, you know that there's you you know what the cards are going to do. Or there's something quite nice watching something where you can go on that journey, as you say, where 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 the real key is the the showmanship, the performance aspect of the person delivering it yeah i mean and also there are standards in magic i'll I'll give you an example in my new show trick talk i do the oldest trick in the world which is um the cups and the balls um which first appears in print in about 65 ad that we think that there's a hieroglyphic of this trick being performed in one of the pyramids so it's a really old old trick 
and people will have seen versions of it before. They'll have never seen my version of it. And again, as I say, it's what you bring for the for, to the table. So even that, a trick as old as the hills, I'm surprising audiences, making them gasp, making them laugh, amazing them uh, on a on a nightly basis. So uh, so yeah, it's 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 the uh, what's the old saying? It's the it's the singer, not the song. There's a real uh, sense of extremes as well in your career because you mentioned um, uh, working clubs, and I know that you cut your teeth in bars and pubs around Middlesbrough playing to maybe two, five, ten people. And here you are doing tricks, like short tricks, 30-second tricks, 60-second tricks, to, at times, tens of millions of people. It's a whole different thing now that you're so prominent on social media, isn't it? It is It is, and it isn't, because I remember going back to Paul Daniels. Um, he was asked once about at the, at the height of his powers, what it, whether we got nervous um, uh, you know, being in front of a TV camera and having 30 million people or whatever the yeah. figure was watching him at home. And his reply was quite interesting. And he says, I'm not performing to 30 million people. I'm performing to about two or three people, about six feet away, sitting on a settee. Yeah. And that's sort of the mindset, you know. It's, uh, and that's, I think, one of the reasons that magic works so well on social media is it is quite intimate. And when you're doing those things, you are sort of, you know, you're looking down the lens, but you're sort of imagining you're just talking to one person. Um, and I mean, it's lovely that some of those tricks have gone viral and reached, as you say, tens of millions of people. I mean, that's sort of mind blowing to get kind of to get <laughs> to get comments from people in Mumbai yeah. or Australia or New York. I mean, that's you know, and I'm just I'm just doing these tricks in my house mm. in North London. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, it's great. But that's, I mean, that is, that's sort of the wonderful world that we live in now, isn't it? Just with a few, you know, my camera, microphone, my laptop, I'm able to put these things out there and sort of build an audience. And I'm sat here in an extraordinarily luxury studio, which is basically a broom cupboard with some hanging packing <laughs> sheets uh, for sound absorption. And it sounds like I'm in, a, I mean, I am in a professional studio, but what I'm saying is that this, this modern age is wonderful, isn't it? We, we can, we can create content in, relatively simple environments and actually i think we've i think we've nailed it having started by me saying you are brilliant because you do two completely different things i think where we've got to is that actually and we're looking here at a gig coming up coming up at the stables which is the absolute home of performance what you've reminded me is that whether it's magic whether it's comedy whether it's someone part of a band whether it's me as a, a broadcaster as a presenter we're all actually fundamentally talking to one person and that's the thread between all of this isn't it i think you're right yeah absolutely and it's um yeah i've I been mean, uh, one person but i but the, nevertheless talking about performance and stuff the, the there is something wonderful about that shared experience of being in a room with a couple of hundred people in a theater and knowing that it's never the same way twice and knowing that 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 really funny thing that happened that the performer was able to improvise on and knowing that that's never going to happen again is also a, a very, very special experience. Yeah. I think I think back to the horrible days of COVID and not being able to do it and um, what a relief it was to get back into that situation where we could sort of all be in a room together and, and share that share that experience. So I think in an ideal world, I, I like the best of both worlds, yeah. you know, talking to somebody, you know, whether they be in in India or um, 
or Indonesia, uh, uh, but also being in a room full of people just enjoying uh, an evening's entertainment. If you would like to be in a room full of people with Pete Furman uh, and his show Trick Talk, you need to get in there quite quickly. Uh, he's coming to the stables on the 24th of February. That's a Saturday. What a great night for a, for a magic and comedy show. So it's an eight o'clock kickoff. Um, just looking here online, it's doing really, really well. If you want to get tickets for this, you need to get in there quite quickly because I'd say that it's uh, it's predominantly sold out. Uh, a handful of tickets available um, in the venue. So stables.org uh, for the box office. And of course, you can call 019082. 800. Need I even say, if you want to find out more about Pete, then just go into any of your social media channels. And your surname, I should point out, is spelt with an A-N at the end. So it's Pete Furman, F-I-R-M-A-N. Um, but TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, you're, 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 you're quite a thing over there, aren't you, Pete? I try. I try. I try. What's good is you only have to make the video once and then you can post it to all those different platforms, yeah. you know? So, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I try and keep it. That I mean, the thing is, once you start on that roller coaster of social media, it, it, it demands content. Yeah. So I'm trying to put out, you know, two or three magic tricks a week, which in amongst, you know, everything else that I'm doing, including the tour is, is tricky, but um, I think it's important to keep on top of it. I agree. I've got one last question for you before you go. Uh, and this is what's going to make or break not only this interview, but quite possibly the podcast. I am thinking of a number between one and 10, Pete Furman. What is it? Seven. How did you even know that? <laughs> and on that note, it's been great to chat to you. You too, Nick. Thanks very much. He's a great guy, Pete. Magic and laughs. What more could you want from an evening's entertainment? Let's finish with Fred's House, a band who've worked their way up through the stables, starting on stage two a decade ago, and now headlining their own show in the Jim Marshall Auditorium in a few weeks' time. Expect infectiously poppy folk with a classically 70s vibe from Vicky Gavin and her fellow bandmates as they make the trip down the A41 from Cambridge, from where Vicky speaks to me now. Vicky, nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Do you know, I was, I was having a read. I was, I was trying to find out a little bit more about uh, Fred's house. And this is one line that, that, that jumped out at me. I don't know if you're aware of this article. There was a, a review of one of your great gigs. And it, and it, said, it referred to Vicky as a pint-sized powerhouse. Is, is this a good place to start? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm only five foot three. Um, but I think all good things come in small packages. So yeah, I'll go with that review. <laughs> uh, and of course, the powerhouse part, you're, you're classically trained. You're, you're, you're a musical theatre teacher by, by day. You, you've got a big voice, haven't you? I've always been told that, um, yes, <laughs> by many teachers in my life, uh, for sometimes good reasons and bad. So <laughs> yeah. It's quite tricky, isn't it? Because when, when you're trained in a particular style, in your case, in, in musical theatre, translating that to a stage presence being part of a band it's not that easy is it do you know that's a really interesting point I remember like I, I went to drama school I did my training um I you know I was always in musicals that was kind of my bag and um when I started the band it was with another a fellow actor that I met on a job and he had always written songs and, and played guitar with his brother who is in the band and um, that's, you know, we started the band together. Um, we were both sort of, jobs were sort of a bit quiet at that time and we just started playing music together. Um, and the thing that I found the most bizarre was getting on stage in front of an audience and not being a character. <laughs> <laughs> like, who am I? Um, and I think I used to be a little bit 
formal, if that makes sense. Like, oh, what am I going to say to the audience during this song or whatever? And um, always be, you know, thinking, oh, do they like me? Am I coming across in the right way? And like worrying about that even more than the playing and the singing. Now I find the best way is just to go on stage and be completely myself, whatever mood I'm in that day, whatever's happened. Um, if I get any bits of juicy gossip uh, from the band of things that have happened <laughs> to them, it usually gets brought up in conversation <laughs> during the gig. So they they hate that. Um, and um, I do sometimes get told off afterwards, but it's it's fine. The, the, the audience, I think, appreciate it when you're real rather than trying to put on a, a performance yeah. of like being somebody that you're, that you're not. Because at the end of the day, the songs are all about my life and so yeah the the question of uh, of a mask is actually an interesting one isn't it as a performer because as you say when you're doing musical theatre you you are going as someone else as another character which you have to completely yeah. embody almost from the morning of the of the performance through to you know when you go to bed when you're in a band it's a different kind of mask i was talking uh, uh, in the last episode to thea gilmore and she was saying how you know for her being on stage it is like being a different person so no matter what you're performing as or in there is this whole element of of it being a mask isn't there yeah definitely oh i th- i definitely i mean like i say I, I i bring myself to the performance but i ultimately you know it is it is an extension of of myself um <laughs> my husband likes to say that um stage vicky is a right bitch <laughs> i don't know what he means by that i think it's when i i do pick on the other band members and things oh. like that so <laughs> but, but, but on the plus side it means real life vicky is really lovely because he wouldn't be pointing out stage oh. vicky if uh, if she if she wasn't completely different uh, I, was, I hope that's true i was reading as well that, that you guys uh you taught China, uh, which I'm really mm. interested in because I, I don't think I've spoken to an artist that has taught China before. And, and in my head, I'm trying to work out, um, you know, how it would have been, how you were received, how the music was viewed, whether you had freedom of movement. It must have been quite an experience. Oh, my goodness. That is one of the craziest things that has ever happened to me in my whole entire life. Um, that was so random. We played a little cabaret gig in Cambridge, which was you know, really lovely. And there was a girl there at the university who was in the audience called Mary, I believe. Um, anyway, it turns out she's involved um, hugely in organising all the uh, Chinese New Year celebrations in Cambridge. And every year they put on a big performance of arts, um, usually just Chinese performers um, celebrating all the arts in Cambridge and Chinese culture and dance and music and everything. And um, randomly, she seemed to really like us and invited us along to play. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was at the Cambridge Corn Exchange, which is the biggest, yeah. you know, it's like such a huge venue in Cambridge. It's the biggest one. Um, so we were like, well, we can't turn down this opportunity. This is amazing. Um, but it was it was just bizarre because, like I say, everybody else was um, you know, Chinese and, and celebrating all of that. So, you know, we sort of felt like we were this kind of, we were bringing something of Cambridge perhaps to, to the show, which was really lovely. Anyway, it was one of those typical, it was a guy backstage all suited and booted. And he came up to um, a couple of the band ma- members after we performed and said, Oh, I really loved your performance. Uh, do you have a CD or something? Um, because I run a festival in, um, China and so they they come trotting back to me and they're like Vix where are the CDs this guy wants to sit I was like you know and thing is you you hear these these sorts of things oh yes I'm involved in this yeah. and I can get you here and all this all the time and I went aha yeah just give him a CD it's fine <laughs> anyway he'll be gone soon <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Didn't think anything more of it. And then until about a couple of weeks later, I just started receiving emails from this lady in China um, saying, oh, you know, we want to invite Fred's house to come and perform here. Um, you know, you, you'll be paid, blah, blah, blah. We sought accommodation, everything. I'm thinking, is this a joke? Yeah. I don't, what? Anyway, so I ignored the email. <laughs> and then anyway, I was telling the boys about it and they were like, uh, reply, you know, kind of thing. Like, what are you doing? I was yeah. like, this can't be legitimate. I don't. Un- anyway, then we're going through the whole thing, the dates. This is what you'll be doing. These are the concerts you'll be performing at. So it was a two-week tour, different concerts, all part of the Nanjing International Music Festival. And, um, you know, we'll, we're, we had to sort visas to go and perform out there. It was just absolutely insane. I mean, even to the point where we were on the plane, we were still going, is, is this real? This real? Yeah. Um, until we see this guy, we get off the plane and we come out of the escalators and we go to the arrivals and there's a guy there and he's got Fred's house music <gasps> band written on a placard and he's waiting for us. And we were like, no way, this is amazing. Yeah. And it was honestly one of the best two weeks of my life. I just loved every second of it. We were we were on a tour bus with a Belgian band. We were going around all these venues and the audiences were so appreciative and yeah. really interested in us. And I think because we were so different and Western, I mean, we had two ginger people in the band. Uh, that that was like, they were the Beatles, you know what I mean? It was like the hair, the everything, you know, our sound, our look was so kind of almost foreign um, to them. And I just loved being over there, being immersed in the culture. It was just honestly yeah. incredible. Well, like, were you free to time. move or, or were we under restriction? Uh, so we were we were looked after by them. I mean, not like, you know, harsh. In fact, we did have one situation where we were performed in a shopping centre one day and um, one of the band members had gone to the toilet and then two police officers had come in there and they were speaking to him in Chinese and he was yeah. I, didn't, I was panicking, didn't know what they were saying to me. Um, and um, apparently they'd been looking for some Mo- Mongolian terrorist who <laughs> right. looked a bit like Paul. So when they Ooh. showed the photo, it was like, oh God, that really does look a bit like him. <laughs> so again, that's just in one of the many hilarious stories. Yeah. Um, so then, of course, the, the director of the festival who was looking after us and his team were you know they had our, they had to have our passports and documents and they were showing and everything was fine obviously um you know why we were there and all of that so what do you think was in it for them what were they looking to get out of the festival so this is just something that they i mean sadly i don't know if it's happened since covid because um they did want to get us back um and then covid happened um so that would have been really nice but um yeah i think it's just um you know trying to bring culture yeah. Uh, all around the world. So they, like I say, there was us and a, a Belgian band, but the initial festival started off with a, with a, like a launch event, um, which was actually one of the most amazing bits because we had bands from Canada, other parts of Europe, um, and, uh, were all performing as part of this ceremony. <clears throat> and then their closing number we sang. I had to learn a song in Chinese, actually. And I sang this song in Chinese, um, whilst all these musicians from all around the world basically backed oh. me. It was just, I know, it was like, can you I remember like, a line? My life right now. Oh, I can. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I've got my morning voice. Uh, now you see i'm no expert but the intonation there sounded perfect to me (laughs) well i don't know that it is but um i i did my best (laughs) 
Talking of gigs, you're coming to the stables on the on the second of March. We'll talk about that in a moment, but I feel like it's time for a, a musical break. What, what can you give us that might give us a, a real taster of, uh, of Fred's house? So we've got this brand new single coming out and um, it's literally going to be available the day before we appear at the stables and it's called Gaslight. It's from our um, upcoming uh, single, uh, our upcoming album. And um, yeah, I think this song really is a true reflection of Fred's house. The lyrics are quite dark, uh, but the tune is boppy. There's like four part thick harmonies. We've got violins in there. It's very catchy. It's a, basically a pop song with folk uh. undertones. So I hope I hope people will enjoy that. And to turn up the volume exclusive. Yes. So you can listen to this first. <laughs> Something that's bothering me I'm questioning myself And you're on it, bees are in your bonnet You're no good for my health Can anybody else see you? Gaslight, see the warning signs And it's so bright, it's blurring Gaslight, I don't want to fight with you no more When it's your turn, you're gonna get It's gonna end It's driving me insane When you're on it, need a gin and tonic You're no good for my brain Can anybody else see you?
So there you have it, uh, a turn on the volume exclusive. That's Gaslight, the brand new single from Fred's House, uh, which is coming out the day before uh, they play the Stables, which is Saturday the 2nd of March at 8 o'clock. Tickets, as always, available at stables.org. The Stables, a venue that you have a long history with. Yeah, we love the Stables. I think back in the early days of the band, you know, we were playing a whole host of different kinds of venues. Um, you know, not to be snobby, but pubs and that, those kind of things where... You might you might have a couple of people who are listening to you in the corner, but essentially everybody else is there just having a good time. And, you know, every band starts in that way. Um, and then we I wrote to the stables and received such a lovely kind of, oh, it's, you know, what you're doing is great. We'd love to have you. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, it was one of the, the first big venue, you know, proper, like a proper venue that wants to book us. This is amazing. Um, and Alison, who heads up the programming yeah. there, she we've known her since our first gig there. And she's just so supportive of us and of of new music and and um and she's loyal as well, isn't she? She is. She has given us some amazing opportunities over the years that we've known her and been involved with the stable. So yeah, we would play on stage two there. I was surprised on our first gig that we'd sold some tickets. This <laughs> was like honestly, it was amazing. They've really helped us build our fan base in the area. Um, and so, yeah, now look at us. We're playing uh, the, the main auditorium um, with our own own gig there from graduating from the smaller stage. And yeah, we couldn't be happier. This time with actual people in the audience and not wearing masks. That's true. So, yeah, in 2020, um, she said she wanted to do a socially distanced show with us. They were only going to sell about 100 tickets. And um, but it was going to be in the main auditorium. So everybody would be spread out in their bubbles. <laughs> and um, that was, again, a bizarre uh, experience because we were looking out to, you know, what felt like, oh, a, a sort of patchy audience, I guess. But but everybody in masks couldn't really see faces very well. And but we were just so happy to be out playing by that point that we almost didn't care. You know, it was kind of like was so nice to be back on a stage and yeah. doing our things so uh, and for yeah. the audience members as well I, I remember my first gig during lockdown a socially distanced gig and it just felt amazing to just be out and actually watching yeah. music oh it was so special i think it was quite emotional for everybody actually yeah so second uh, of march uh, as i mentioned stables.org for tickets or the box office on 01908 280 uh, and vix where can we find out more about fred's house so uh, best place to go is um, our website, which is www.fredshousemusic.co.uk. Um, and we're also on, you know, the usual social platforms. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram um, and that, all of those. So I nearly said Twitter. That doesn't exist anymore, does it? X. Oh. <laughs> and just before you go, we must mention the support act, Elizabeth and Jameson, an act that you've got close links with. There's a story there, isn't there? So uh, so the support act is uh, my ex, um, the, the person who I started the band with. Um, during our uh, time in the band, we actually uh, split up and then proceeded to be in the band for another two and a half years together. <laughs> um, but he had his new his new partner, Hannah, who's also a musician, and they had a duo, um, which is Elizabeth and Jameson. And, um, you know, we we sort of wanted to do uh, a show with them um, when we can, because they're still friends. And oh. like I said, Griff's brother is still our bassist in our band. Mm. So uh, there's no getting away from that. No, we still get on, still get on great. And um, so because this is, you know, such a big, important show for us, we thought it'd be really, really lovely to have Griff along and um, with his with his act uh, to play with us. And we're actually planning to do a few 
uh, old, old Fred's House songs from back in the day of stuff that we don't, it's not in our current set list with the new lineup. So um, that's really exciting. And we're going to have a little visit down uh, memory lane and pull out a couple of the favourites to play with him. So I think that'll be really nice for anyone who's a long-standing Fred's House fan who wants to come along and it be, um, you know, come and see that so that'll be really nice <laughs> and adults being grown-ups about their past history isn't that isn't that fantastic well we always <laughs> joked that the band was like our child yeah and um so you know we can't just abandon it no. because uh, because we've decided to end our relationship you have so. joint parental responsibility <laughs> sort of yeah and we still play some of the songs that he's written which he kindly allows us to so you know yeah. Vix, lovely to chat to you. I'm sure many of our listeners will be looking forward to seeing uh, you and the support act on the 2nd of March at the Stables. Uh, I hope it goes well for you. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. And that's a wrap for this episode of Turn Up the Volume. Thanks to Vicky and Pete and Jim. More details about all of today's guests, their shows, and indeed everything happening at the Stables can be found at stables.org. As I said at the start, do click on follow for this series. That way you'll get notified of all of our future episodes. And if you can, a review or a rating would be very, very much appreciated. We hope to see you soon at the Stables. Until next time, from me, Nick Coffer, and all the team at the Stables, it's goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.